Everybody and welcome to the True Crime Squad. This is Katie Weaver, and I'm here by myself. <laughs> no sister, no co-host, no partner in crime. Uh, Christy's sick, so I was the guy in court today, so I am here anyway, and that's completely fine. But uh, lots of love to her to get feeling better soon, dang it. But I'm here. I have a lot to say. Oh, man. It was another pretty wild day in court. So I want to say hi to everybody in the chat and welcome everybody that's filing in. Good to see you guys. I hope you're well. Yesterday was such a hard, hard day. Uh, I think everybody was a little shell-shocked last night. And today lightened up somewhat. It was just a very science-y day. And I will admit that some of it got a little bit dry, but, uh, you know, they're not there to entertain us. <laughs> but, uh, it got a little bit uh, dry. It's kind of an interesting thing in the uh, in the viewing room from Rexburg where we are. Uh, it's kind of developed a bit of a, a little bit too comfortable feel. Like people are showing up with blankets and food and uh, pillows and I don't like the vibe that it's turning into like a slumber party over there. I think if Judge Boyce knew, he would be livid because he has, you know, rules for the courtroom. Not that the bailiffs aren't, or the uh, deputies that are there aren't trying, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I, I'm kind of, I think we all need to remember that this is a triple homicide, you know? And it doesn't have to be hard and sad and awful all the time, but at the same time, like, some basic reverence for the deceased and on all the victims that have been touched by this crime. I think we need to remember it. That's all. That's my little soapbox. Yes. <laughs> so I have, yeah, good to see you all uh, for sure. Yes, I, I'm with you, Snow Queen. So many questions and theories. There's a lot of things we need to, uh, yeah, hash out. Right. It's not like going to a movie. It, it, we just all need to remember that, right? You guys do, right? I know you do. Pam said, do you think they will play any videos of Lori and Chad in Hawaii when she tells Nate, that's nice, when he says people are praying for her children? Well, they should. They should, Pam. I don't know if they will. Uh, I don't know. I, I wish they would. That's a good one for them to see. Because do you remember the call with Summer? She said something very similar to that. That's nice in that same tone. And I thought, wow, where have we heard that bullshit before? Right there, that attitude. Yeah. So today we started to, is there a color to honor JJ, Tylee, Charles, and Tammy? Not that I know of, Biffany, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that. that there should be though, right? I... I now I have to remember, there was a candlelight vigil at JJ's elementary school here in Rexburg. Now, remember, he only went there for about three weeks, but they did hold a vigil for him. And I don't know if they all wore a specific color for JJ or if it was just more a vigil. We went, uh, 
it was really, really, really super cold and I had bronchitis. So we stayed in the car and observed, but didn't get out. And that's kind of, uh, that, that's kind of what we did. So, uh, but, but I don't remember that there was, uh, a color, but it's a great idea. Yeah. They did try to bring Nate into this. Yes. They tried to subpoena Nate, uh, and Nate was able to lawyer up with the help of like a journalist guild that uh, he's a part of that supported him because journalists aren't supposed to be called as witnesses. And uh, he did get out of that subpoena. Yep, for sure. Oh, for Gannon Stotch, it's blue. It helps to keep the focus. Really good idea, Biffany. We might have to start a movement, you guys. I don't know. Let's think about it. Let's think about it. Maybe somebody remembers. Actually, I'm sure Kay could tell us what uh, JJ's favorite color was. But what about Tylee? And what about Tammy? We got to hear a little bit for, about Tammy today at the end of the day. And it did my heart so good. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> so Lori showed up today wearing those. Nate calls them her zebra print pants. I don't know that they're really zebra print, but we're going to go with it. So she showed up in her, uh, in her, <laughs> in her zebra pants with her tampon curls in her hair. That's what she was rocking today. Uh, from the best I could see. And now to be fair, it's hard to see. She also spends quite a bit of time hiding behind her, one of her attorneys behind Archibald's computer screen. And it, it's hard to see, but also when you're live tweeting it, like you guys, it's a marathon from start to finish. You type everything out on Facebook, you submit it, you copy it, you run over to Twitter, you put it there, you come back for the next statement. So there are probably things that uh, are going down in the courtroom that I am definitely missing. So, but from my observations of what I did see of her today, she seemed very normal, uh, real chatty with her attorneys. At one point, she was turned with her back to Thomas, which is pretty normal. Um, she seems to gravitate towards Archibald more than Thomas. And she had her back to him, had her whole chair turned with her back, the back of her chair kind of up against his side, just chatting it up with Archibald. <laughs> but I don't know if they're skin tight. They look like dress pants, really. But yeah, zebra pants and tampon hair. That's what we had. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Lana. Okay. That's true. There are bracelet, bracelets for Tylee and JJ in blue and purple. That's a good point. I have one. Uh, yeah, that I received in court, actually. So, a good thought. Okay. Well, let's, let's dive into it. It was a long day. So, we started the day with Dr. Angie Christensen. She was back up. Uh, from yesterday, this is a, she's a forensic anthropologist from Quantico. And she was amazing. She was a badass. She really was. So she was talking about, uh, of course, the judge reminded everyone of all the rules and all of the things, you know, uh, all the stuff. Dr. Christensen took the seat or the stand. And Smith was on direct. She pulled up an image of Tylee's pelvis bone from two different angles. Saw a lot of Tylee's uh, hip and pelvis bones today. That's mostly what we viewed. And tools. We'll get there. Uh, 
she pointed out five areas of sharp impact on the bone. As you recall, maybe if you listened yesterday or, or followed this stuff, this is the stuff that uh, we ended with yesterday that just sounded so upsetting. Like, and I'm still upset. Like, I still don't understand. Even after a day of testimony, we'll get there. But I still can't, even with the whole, what the hell, with the sharp stabbies to her sacrum or sacrum and her pelvis she was hit with something over and over and over again like with a sharp object they murdered her they dismembered her they burned her we know this uh we've been horrified about this for three years but having this thought about chad or alex and or Alex having unfettered access to this uh, deceased 16-year-old girl and then seeing these injuries to her uh, her vaginal area, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm so sick about it. I'm so pissed off about it. And even after what we heard today, I still don't understand. I don't think anybody does. Like, really, what in the actual hell? Yeah. But let's get there. So... She said the general location of sharp impact was inconsistent with dismemberment. That was the problem. Usually with dismemberment, people are, bodies are taken apart at the joints uh, to make them smaller, easier to manage. Uh, but there would be no reason to go at the pelvic area like that with uh, potentially a hatchet, a pickaxe. Why? So we saw photos of the right hip bone. There were sharp alterations on this bone as well. There was six, yeah, six on that hip bone. And it, but the it, damages to the hip bone are more in, in, inward towards the pelvis, to, if I can make that more clear. And then on the sacrum, there was one picture of the sacrum bone, part of it, uh, that had a sharp alteration on the left side. Then we saw an x-ray image of the sacrum with four vertebrae attached. There was no sharp image uh, or no sharp trauma on the x-ray. But sometimes uh, trauma isn't always visible in a radiographic image. That was it for Christensen. Uh, John Thomas was on the cross. He was mostly on everything today. I think we heard from uh, Archibald on one cross. Um, he again asked about these... Uh, Injuries not being consistent with a dismemberment type case. He asked how many dismemberment cases she's done in her career. She said fewer than 10. Uh, you know, because this is not normal. She also said that she is constantly reading case studies and reports about dismemberment cases and staying current. And again, she said dismemberment cases are typically done by cutting around joints, and that was not done with Tylee. Christensen said her main job is to identify trauma on the bones and narrow down what bones could be examined by other people. She said in this particular case, what types of instruments were used based on your professional experience? Oh, he said, training, research, review of other articles. What type of instruments were used? And Thomas, Thomas asked her that. She said that's not her expertise. That's for the tool expert. She wasn't the tool expert. And so they, uh, you know, he, he, 
every time he had somebody on the stand today, I felt like he was trying to trip him up, trying to get him to uh, say something that was outside of their scope so that he could maybe jump on that. Uh, he said some very weird things today, honestly, some really inane questions, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, he asked how long Tylee's exam took. She began her exam on August 23rd, 2020, and completed her final result on September 22nd, 2020. And she said she generally only works one case at a time, so she worked Tylee's case for a month, getting those bones sorted and figured out. On a follow-up question from Prosecutor Smith, she said, if you can't tell a specific tool, do you, how do you determine it was actually caused by sharp trauma? And Christensen said it refers to trauma imparted by something with a very small surface area. It's different than blunt trauma that might just cause, you know, a large surface area of damage. Sharp trauma is something that causes, you know, like a cut, like a hatchet or something like that. She didn't say that. I'm saying that. Uh, the next witness was Douglas Halapaska. He also works at Quantico. He is a forensic examiner in the firearms and tool marks division. And we got to see a little of Tanya Rawlings today. She's the deputy prosecuting attorney from uh, Fremont County. It was nice to see her. She did a great job. I've been really impressed with everybody from the prosecution. We see Lindsay Blake, we see Wood, we see Smith, we see Rawlins, we see uh, Rammel, and they all are so prepared. I felt like they've all done an excellent job, but they have five of them, right? So they can kind of split that work out so that they're all working with different witnesses and working with different parts of the story. Uh, knowing that it is such a vast story, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, of course, uh, Halapaska talked about his uh, experience. He's been at the Quantico Lab for 13 years. So he said when evidence arrives at the tool mark uh, and firearm unit, Usually an examiner or a tech picks it up and puts it in a storage facility until they're ready to uh, work with it. So he said it normally comes from FedEx and sometimes delivered by hand. In this case, they received evidence from the Ada County Coroner's Office. And he did also ask to see his notes. He's not the first one of these scientists that asked to see their notes. And it makes sense. There's just so much information and there's so many exhibits, you know. And the process, or the defense has been, I don't know, somewhat uh, prickly about it, but they've all made it in with their notes. So he said a tool can be thought of when two objects come in contact with each other. The harder of the two objects is called the tool. The softer of the objects is called the tool mark. So, of course, in Tylee's case, the tool was whatever was being used on her body, and she was receiving the tool marks because uh, anything could be a tool, you know? So Rawlings asks Halapska if he uses casting material. This is pretty interesting. He uses casting material that's a silicone-based compound. It's administered on the surface as a thick liquid. So imagine like, it, it kind of sounded to me like something kind of like a liquid cement or rubber cement, sorry, like rubber cement. You know, it goes on to the surface. Once it dries, then they peel it off and they have this rubberized material that is the cast of 
whatever thing, whatever it was he was trying to cast. He took five castings of the evidence items. So in other words, he would have a mark on a bone and then he would paint it with the stuff and let it dry and peel it off. And then he would have an actual cast of the marking. Does that make sense? It kind of helped them to, uh, to be able to, uh, yeah, like they do dental molds, helps them to be able to really uh, examine the interior of the, of the wound, of the injury, so that they can look for tool marks. So he said during the first part of his examination process, he documented everything in his notes, of course. Uh, they admitted some photographs. Thomas looks over them and wants to ask Rawlings a question. They actually walked into the corner of the courtroom and spoke. Uh, there was no white noise today. Apparently there had been some tech issues that Boyce said they were trying to fix over lunch. I thought that the uh, witnesses were very hard to hear today, like worse than ever. In fact, the first witness, they had to ask, uh, or no, it was this guy. <laughs> they had to ask him to move the mic away from his mouth a little bit because he was just, you know, Ugh, very hard to hear. So then he was like, well, maybe I can just talk without the mic. He had a deep voice. And they're like, well, no, you have to be on the record. Oof. It was tough. It was harder. Uh, at any rate, whatever he had a question with, Rawlings answered because he went ahead and took his seat. An image of the hip bone was up on the screen. Uh, Halapaska points out damage on the bone and says there are signs of stabbing and chopping-like actions to the bone. The next photo is a close-up of the hip bone where he says there was evidence of stabbing action. He said you can actually see where the bone has begun to, come, begun to fracture and the force of the impact came down at a perpendicular angle. The fracturing that's occurring has been driven into the bone. The bone has a hard layer and a hollowed layer inside. This penetrated the hard layer into the hollow layer and there was damage that occurred on the other side of the bone. There were two different spots where whatever they were attacking uh, Tylee's hip bones and pelvis with actually pierced all the way through to the other side of the bone. Yep. So he did cast those. He did it twice. He was unable to identify any characteristics of the tool that caused the damage, meaning that there was nothing that on the casting that would make you think, oh, this is definitively this tool or this brand or this, a tool that has a notch out of it or, you know, something that you could see that would make a really uh, specific impression wasn't there. Doesn't mean a tool wasn't used, of course. It just means that there was nothing that was super remarkable that would help you identify it against a, a very specific tool. The next image was more damage and fractures to the hip bone. Uh, in this one, that didn't uh, get all the way through. Again, he casted this one, but didn't wasn't able to identify any characteristics. And I mean, understand, remember, Tylee was, uh, her body had been burned. The, the bones, some of them had been quite damaged. These were all fairly well intact, but, uh, you know, there was certainly a lot of damage to her crime scene or, or her body that says is, is making a lot of this pretty hard. So the next slide showed multiple images uh, 
The picture showed close-up images of the tool marks. He said that while he couldn't say what the exact tool was, he speculates that they came from a bladed tool like a machete or a hatchet. A machete, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Another bone shows a crack in the bone that cut through the hard layer and transferred to the other side of the bone. Uh, Halepska said it indicated to him that there might have been some kind of serrated edge on the blade. Not all of the injuries looked like they had a serrated uh, blade used. There was only one or two. He said that also would have come from a chopping type action. Then we see the backside of the hip bone. And he says it looks like a bladed edge of a tool, like a knife. But again, he said other tools might have some kind of pointed edge that could do some more damage. We see quite a few more bones. That intact portion of Tylee's spine also had marks on it consisting with a chopping type action. Then we see the other side of the hip or pelvic region. And this part of the bone was more damaged from fire. He said he couldn't find any tool marks, but that it does appear that some kind of force was applied to it uh, in a perpendicular manner, manner driving it downward. But it was still attached to the bone. Then uh, we see another photo from a bone showing damage from chopping type action. Basically, it says there's three different kinds of, of action that they're looking for. They're looking for uh, piercing or stabbing, chopping, or compression. Those are the three things that they thought they had uh, or, or that they look for when they're trying to determine what kind of tool. And then, of course, uh, firearms, which is a completely different conversation that we didn't have with, with Mr. Halepska because there was no evidence that, that Tylee was shot. Uh, the next image is uh, a big image of a large piece of her hip bone. And he shows some type of force was applied there because there's an impression on it. There were other areas of damage on the hip bone too. Then they put all the bones together so that you could see her, like her hips, her spine, her vertebrae, her sacrum all together. And that he had marked all of the spots that were damaged and there were a bunch of them. That was pretty sobering. Then they flipped that flip image over and we saw the backside of those bones. And he pointed out a lot of stabbing and chopping type action uh, to those bones on the other side as well. So whatever they did to her there, they did it to her on the front and the back of her. Rollins asked him to summarize his findings. He said he was able to outline tools that could have produced the marks, but he couldn't specifically determine each individual item. Uh, he said that he thought that the marks came from a hatchet, a knife, a cleaver, something with serrated teeth marks, a machete, or maybe even other tools. Uh, she had no further questions. Thomas on cross. Of course, he always asks about their education, kind of just a rematch or a repeat of what has already been said. And at that point, we broke for a break. When we came back... Thomas asked Salapska about, he's a student at the National Intelligence University. He's like, well, I don't know what that is. So, like, can anybody go there? And he's like, well, no, only people with uh, with clearance. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that too. But uh, 
So Halepska, I thought, was really impressive. He's got great credentials. He's just continuing his education. It's not like any of these witnesses, are they really able to, uh, you know, find anything wrong with their degrees or anything. But, uh, I, and honestly, I feel like Thomas is, in a lot of ways, just trying to repeat some stuff just to have a cross, just to have something to say. So... But this is where it got kind of weird, and I think this is a bit disappointing. He wanted Thomas wanted to know if Halepska had processed any of the tools seized from Chad Daybell's property to use in the testing to determine if any of these tools were tools that were used on Tylee. And he says no, he did, he did not that those tools were never uh, at their facility. And Thomas is like, why? And he said he didn't know. And he asked him, well, why didn't you request those tools? And he said that uh, he didn't even know there were tools. I mean, every every crime scene is different. Every body is different. It doesn't mean that they all have tools, right? Or tool marks or, or access to the tools that might have been used on these bodies. And we learned later in the day that those tools stayed at the Idaho State Lab in case there was a need for further testing on them. But I agree, Jennifer. I He should have had the tools. I feel like this is something that fell through the cracks. I absolutely agree. Yep, I felt like that was certainly a highlight on a mistake that was made. Uh, yeah, Pryor was there today. Yeah. Yep, agreed. It was a good point on Thomas's part. Probably the only good point he made all day, to be honest. But he did make that one. So then Thomas says, is it true you don't know what caused these marks? You just know it was something? And Halopska replies, all I know is the marks were generated by some tool that is consistent in generating those marks. But I can't know what it is. He also wanted to know if his analysis... Uh, took into account that there would have been skin and flesh and tendons and whatnot that they'd be cutting through. And he explained that, no, he only looks at the bones and uh, that would only be useful if he was trying to determine the velocity of the uh, injuries and he was not. So they talk a little bit about uh, I think he's the one. I think he asked uh, Halepska if he could say whether uh, the chopping or the injuries were caused by a male or a female. And he said no, that he would not be able to know that. Rollins uh, has a few short uh, follow-ups and then he's released. And then they call David Sincerbo. Uh, he's retired from the Idaho State Police uh, from the lab. He was an analytical chemist at the ISP lab, and his job was analyzing fire debris and drugs, actually. Uh, Sensor Bo has examined tens of thousands of items affected by fire during the course of his career. He said that they received a pint-sized can containing decomposing flesh and other debris collected from Chad's property. Uh, what he was checking it for was an accelerant. His job was to 
do the process of testing this to see if that uh, that flesh and that uh, fire pit stuff or, or ash and stuff they had would be positive for an accelerant. It was. It was positive for gasoline. Yeah. So... Smith rests on him. She has nothing further. John Thomas on the cross. He asked him how full the pint size can was. Uh, Sensor Bow didn't recall, but said that they normally want it to be about three-fourths of the way full for testing. So he's assuming it was somewhere in there. When it comes to testing, they use a charcoal strip attached to a Christmas tree ornament to hang the uh, charcoal strip in the substance without it uh, actually touching it if possible. He gave a super scientific answer to determine how this happened. Uh, it was more than anybody could write, to be honest. He was flying. He was going so fast that they had to uh, ask him to slow down for a second so that the court reporter could catch up a couple of times. He was booking it. So, but basically, that's uh, that was kind of it, except for Thomas. Thomas asked Censor how many pints were in a gallon? Why? I don't know. Well, you know who did not know at all? Thomas didn't know. Censorbo thought it out for a second and talked him through it. <laughs> what the hell? What the hell? He also asked the tools guy. I think he was trying to ask if any of the tools used looked like they were sophisticated. But how it came across was asking him if uh, it looked like the whoever used the tool was sophisticated. I don't know. And he said, um, no. What? What? I know. I... <laughs> yes, surely. Someone sophisticated used a pickaxe on Tylee. What? Again, I think he was trying to ask about the tool, but it came across like the person. And everybody in our room was looking at each other like, what the hell is he saying? What, we, what does that even mean? Anyway. So Thomas uh, doesn't know how many pints are in a gallon. Maybe he does today since Herbo did take him to school. So hopefully he did. So that was it for Thomas. No redirect since Herbo was excused. The next uh, witness was Rylene Nolan. Nolan works for the state forensic department. She's the lab manager. She works at the state lab. Uh, Rob Wood was on direct. Wood asked Nolan to describe her experience, which, of course, she did. She's She has testified approximately 85 times before today about DNA analysis. She said over the course of 20 years, she's tested thousands of DNA samples. There are a lot of steps to ensure the process of collecting DNA is correct. She said that uh, there's a lot of controls built into the system to make sure that it works. She gave us somewhat of an explanation. It was very sciencey, of course. You know, I feel like we're all coming out of here like Temperance Brennan today, but maybe not. One thing that they do to uh, prevent cross contamination is the labs are bleached down daily, lab coats are worn, hairs pulled back. Each item is tested separately. They be they're really careful. Their accreditation is kind of interesting because it has to be accredited for this state. But it also has to be accredited with uh, the FBI and other 
agencies so that they can work back and forth and everybody is uh, basically using the same standards. So they have to pretty high, have pretty high standards on uh, their, their processes and procedures. So they received items that, uh, she received biological items that were said to be collected from Tylee and JJ. For both of them, they were molars and a section of rib. She was also given uh, known DNA samples from Dennis Trahan and Lori Vallow. So she created a DNA profile for Tylee and then compared it against the DNA profile from Lori to determine if Lori was Tylee's mother. And the results showed 99.99999% of the female population was excluded from being Tylee's mother, essentially guaranteeing that, yes, Lori is Tylee's mother. It's kind of how they start creating their profiles is a bit of comparison. Then moving on to JJ. And, and incidentally, with Tylee, in order to uh, get the DNA from that tooth, they pulverized it into powder in order to extract the DNA. JJ's tooth still had pulp in it. She said his tooth still had pulp and, and had plump veins and stuff in it that she had to extract in order to uh, to process his tooth. I don't know why that made my stomach hurt, but so the DNA profile for JJ was compared against Dennis Trahan. Dennis Trahan is JJ's biological father, uh, in case you were wondering. That is Kay's son. And that result also showed that 99.99999% of the male population was excluded from being JJ's father, essentially guaranteeing that uh, Dennis Trahan is the biological father of JJ Vallow. So that was it for Nolan, and there was no cross. So that was it. And we went to lunch. When we came back from lunch, they called Catherine Dace. Catherine Dace is a forensic biologist for the Idaho State Police. She has worked there since 2016. It was uh, Rob Wood on direct. Dace described her education and history, of course, all of that stuff. She received J.J. Vallow's autopsy samples, including all of the swabs, uh, the nail swabs, the hand swabs, all of the other orifice body swabs. She received teeth and plastics from the burial site. She received swabs from Lori's apartment and a chain and a pendant. She also received 18 hand tools from the Daybell property. She received duct tape from around J.J.'s uh, hands, ankles, and mouth as well as duct tape from the plastic bag that was wrapped around his head. She did say most of the tape and plastic had apparent blood and decomp fluid present. She tested all of the items for blood, which was positive. On the tape, she also looked for irregular edges. I thought this was amazing. We've all talked about the tape and it pulling out hairs, and it turns out there is hair, and yada yada. She was looking for abnormal edges on the tape where somebody may have torn it off with their teeth because if they did that there might be a saliva sample there for her she didn't find one but I thought that was uh that was something that I sure hadn't thought of but I guess that's why I don't work at the lab right but I thought that was interesting 
they also collected hair and other fibers from the tape, of course. She said there was blood all over everything. Uh, there, the chain and the pendant that were found when they uh, excavated Tylee, she did test that. There was no blood on either of those items. Then she tested a knife that was found in Lori's apartment for blood. It tested negative. There was a swab from the wall of Lori's apartment that tested uh, positive, a very faint positive for blood. Tays did blood testing on all the tools for from Chad's house. She found several spots uh, that were presumptive positive blood stains on the tools. And on several of the tools, she found what thought she thought could be charred flesh. So she photographed the tools, took examples to do the DNA testing, and they started uh, adding some exhibits, some photos. The first was the image of a shovel. On the first shovel, she did think that she uh, found some uh, potentially charred flesh that she took for DNA analysis. She was not able to generate a DNA profile from that sample. The next exhibit was another shovel that also had a bunch of material on it uh, that caught her attention. She said some of the shovels had what looked to be like ash or dirt. This also had something that she thought could be charred flesh. Uh, and also on this one, she uh, was not able to obtain a DNA profile from. Then there was a third shovel. This shovel had a yellow handle, like the shaft was yellow. It had a black like top handle. And then the bottom, the shovel part was also uh, black. She said she looked for blood and collected debris and other material from the blade of this shovel. She said this shovel had a soft texture on it that she collected for DNA. She thought it could be biological remains, and it was. So she was able to get a DNA sample from that shovel, and it matched Tylee. Dace received a DNA sample from Lori, JJ, Tylee, Melanie Gibb, and Dennis Strahan. Dace, uh, as we know, she had compared the DNA she obtained on the shovel to others. It matched Tylee Ryan's DNA. Yes, so it was definitely Tylee's DNA on the shovel. Then we saw a pickaxe, and we've all been wondering about the pickaxe really all along since we heard about the pickaxe being removed from um, in all of the tools and stuff. But uh, yeah, Melanie Gibb offered her DNA, and our understanding is that Jason Mao did too. And I tweeted this, and some of you guys may have not understood what this meant. Jason Mao was a friend of theirs from Arizona that was doing, like, the preparing a people talks. And I think he has a book and some stuff like that. He was into all that prepper kind of stuff. But, of course, these guys got way too radical for Jason Mao, and at some point he jumped out. But his uh, whole uh, platform is about that you got to warrior up. You got to warrior up and do what needs to be done. So if you saw me tweet today that uh, Jason Mout looks like he really did warrior up after all, that's what I meant <laughs> because he did offer his DNA. You know, some people who didn't really want to be uh, implicated in this bullshit just because they were sidekicks of theirs. All right, so the pickaxe. So... 
she also found a DNA profile on the pickaxe on the eye of it, like where it connects, like the top part to the bottom part. And that too matched Tylee's DNA. So then they talked about the duct tape. And we saw some images of hairs that were collected from the plastic and duct tape that JJ's body was wrapped in. This wasn't the tape wrapped around his arms and hands. This was just from the uh, the tape that uh, wrapped the plastic. So she did some testing on the duct tape. She was not able to test the hair, but it was sent to a different lab to do that. And that was it for her. She was working alongside another... Uh, inspector or another scientist there that who was in charge of latent fingerprints so they kind of worked side by side with the uh the duct tape because they both had different jobs to do that had to do with the duct tape so on cross of course thomas asks about her background and then she he asks about the hair he wanted to know how the tape arrived. It arrived in an autopsy bag. The tape and the plastic and everything were in JJ's autopsy bag. That's how they got to them. It had some decomp fluid in it that was all over everything else. But that's what they got. Uh, Thomas wanted to know if the hair could have been floating around the body bag. I'm assuming he meant in the decomp fluid. And gotten stuck to the tape. They said it's possible for that to happen, yeah. Uh, Thomas wanted to know how many DNA samples have been collected, have ever been collected. She responded that there's a population database from individuals who volunteer their DNA, uh, and it contains 1,700 samples. There's other databases they can test uh, DNA against, but this one is 1,700 samples that are a good cross-section of the population for uh caucasians native or caucasians uh african americans and hispanics there is actually a separate database for sometimes for much smaller uh like members of the population he asked her if from her dna she could tell if tylee ryan is a native american and she said well no and she said, we don't look for race unless it's specifically asked for. And that's where I, I think it was an attempt at a gotcha question. It kind of fell flat. She acted super confused about that. But I think that's what it was about. Uh, she repeated or completed her report in April 2021. She said they just report their results back to the submitting agency. And then it's up to them if they want to do follow-up testing. And that's why the tools remained in the state lab, as far as she was concerned, pending permission to consume the blood stain on the handle of the pickaxe. You remember the fight about the consumptive testing? Well, it was a tiny, tiny sample. We saw a picture of it today on the handle of the pickaxe that uh, they didn't want to use because it would consume it the whole thing so they didn't want to use it until they had an agreement with the defense because the defense would not be able to take that sample and do anything with it with their experts and that uh, is 
a whole fight and conversation that happened in court over the last couple of years. I'm sure you guys remember. And is part of the reason that uh, the death penalty ended up being taken off the table. Do you guys understand why the death penalty came off the table? I am seeing a lot of people and having a lot of people message me and ask me and tell me how pissed off they are about it. I don't think we have explained this well enough. Uh, maybe we have, but I don't know if uh, the media in general has. And so I feel like uh, you guys, we, we need to kind of clarify that a little bit. The death penalty came off the table because there were three factors. Lori did not waive her right to a speedy trial. And so her trial had to happen now, had to, or her constitutional rights were being violated. There was evidence, and some of it is this consumptive testing stuff, that had not been processed in a very timely manner. And part of that is because of Lori's uh, stay in the hospital, changes in attorneys, bullshit, all of it, you know, kind of combined that they didn't get that testing done soon enough. And so that evidence was just barely rolling in. Some of the DNA evidence just got here, like right before trial. And it wasn't enough time for the defense attorneys to have any of their expert witnesses take a look at it or do anything with it. So Pryor said, we aren't going to trial. We are not going to trial right now. We still need time with that. Our experts still need time with that. And if you make us go to trial right now, that'll just trigger an immediate appeal because we didn't have enough time with the evidence. And then, of course, the other piece of it is that the prosecution uh, did not turn over other evidence in a timely way. The judge basically was left with a few choices. It's why he had to unsever or, or sever, sorry, sever the uh, unsever. I've got severing on the brain now. It's why he had to uh, break apart the cases and let Chad, uh, you know, be on his own here. It, he either was going to have to drop the charges on Lori and make the defense or the prosecution, sorry, refile, or push the trial out so that uh, Pryor had more time. He couldn't because Lori had that right to the speedy trial. There had to be some kind of a comeuppance. There had to be something that happened. Lori's attorneys begged her, begged her to waive her right to a speedy trial. They wanted more time with the DNA too, but she would not do it. So they're at court uh, doing the best they can, but they weren't as prepared as they wanted to be, but she would not waive it. And from... Uh, Conversations I'm hearing from people who had talked to her at the jail. Lori really seems to think that maybe she's just going to get time served. Three years. And she doesn't want to wait any longer. She wants to get on with her life. As a cult leader in prison? Because that's where you're headed, Lolo. But uh, at any rate, that's why the death penalty came off the table. It was not... Anything other than that, this was not a plea deal. This was not because the judge was just being incompetent or being a jerk. This is because the prosecution screwed up. At the end of the day, that's what happened. I think the prosecution in a lot of ways has done a marvelous job. But 
in this way, no. There have been discovery issues all along, and unfortunately those issues led to the death penalty coming off the table. So sorry for that uh, sideline there, but I feel like a lot of people still don't understand that and really need to so that you can really understand what's going on with this case. All right. The next witness on the stand was Martinez. This is Tara Martinez. She is also an ISP employee working at the state lab. Uh, let's see, we have Rachel Smith uh, on direct. So she is the latent fingerprint person. Latent means unseen. So we're talking about prints that are left on a surface that you can't see but has been left behind. She said people don't always leave latent prints. Some people have better skin to leave latent prints than others. People who sweat or produce more amino acids will leave latent prints more likely than someone who won't. Uh, the surface also makes a difference. She said the things that really come into play the most are texture, sometimes color, and condition. Is it dusty, dirty, rusty? Conditions have to be right for a latent print to be left, in other words. She talked about the scientific process of obtaining latent prints. Uh, sometimes it's dusting, sometimes it's super glue, sometimes it's other things. She said you just, you can't make a blanket statement on obtaining latent prints because they are, it, it's so specific to the item that she's looking at. So she takes unknown latent prints and compares them with known prints so that she can see if she has a match. Uh, sometimes from a law enforcement database, but in this case, it came, you know, specifically from the, the players involved. So her first connection to this case is that she, one of her jobs sometimes is to go out into the field to take DNA samples and fingerprint samples. So she was requested to assist Rexburg police at the coroner's office to obtain prints for JJ. So she actually went to the coroner's office and got JJ's fingerprints uh, during his autopsy. And then she was called to go to Rexburg and St. Anthony to get fingerprints, footprints, and hair samples from Lori and Chad from the, the jails. She also was able to get fingerprints of Alex from the police departments in Arizona. Sure glad. Now, hopefully, maybe that came from his autopsy. I don't know. But we know that Alex had a record and went to jail, uh, you know, for beating up on Joe Ryan. So I don't know if that's how they had his fingerprints. But thank God they did have his fingerprints. So she processed a lab bag titled bag around JJ, JJ's head, and duct tape. She said a lot of the duct tape was attached to itself, and so she had to go through a real process to get it apart from itself, and that's where they found the hairs that were collected. Uh, the plastic pieces and duct tape were processed for latent prints. She processed the duct tape that was on JJ's mouth, ankles, and hands. She was able to develop usable prints on some of the items, but not all. She got usable items or usable prints off of two items. Um, they were both parts of that black plastic bag around JJ's head. On the first item, she compared the prints to Lori, Chad, JJ, and Alex. She could not reach a definitive match on that one. 
Uh, it was inconclusive because of the quality of the print. So then we see, oh, sorry, that was a different part of the, the bag, I think. Then we get to see more of the bag. There's two plastic bags. There's like a piece of a bag and then the bigger piece of the bag. It's actually pretty big. So she processed those and that's where she was able to get latent prints. Uh, both of them matched Alex Cox. One of them was his from his right little finger and one of them was from his palm. So that was all. That was all she had. Only Alex. Some of you guys are uh, expressing that you're kind of worried that uh, there hasn't been any prints or DNA or anything to tie Lori to this crime yet. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. We have a lot of intent. We have a lot of uh, data still to come, I think. Um, I I don't know. I think there's still plenty of uh, evidence to come, but I was disappointed today to not hear any Lori Vallow DNA or even Chad Daybell DNA and certainly not hear any uh, Lori Vallow fingerprints or Chad Daybell fingerprints. And again, they may still be coming in other ways, but yeah, not a fan. was hoping we'd hear a little bit more than that. Then we get our, and there was, that was it for Smith. Def the defense had no cross, so that was it for Martinez. Uh, then our last, uh, well, not our last, actually. There were two more. Uh, they recalled Chuck Consitus. Chuck Consitus is a detective for the Rexburg Police Department. He was involved in uh, the recovery of Tylee Ryan. Now, I found this to be a pretty interesting story. Consitus saw, before the kids were found, or no, sorry, after the kids were found, just as a part of their investigation, they saw a story that KSL ran. KSL is a news agency out of Salt Lake City that had some satellite images of the house of Chad's property that they were pointing out some changes in the landscape from pre-Tylee and JJ murders to post-Tylee and JJ murders. So they went to this company. Uh, they were called Apollo, Apollo something. And they were able to obtain from them, uh, they purchased from them actually, he said for about $200, uh, pictures from their satellites from the right days and times where they could see some disturbances in on the property. There was a discolored darkened shape out in the area of the pet cemetery. This was taken the day Tylee died or that they believe Tylee died at about 12.32 p.m. That's less than an hour after uh, Alex Cox left the property. Interesting, right? Uh, they also had an image from September 2nd that uh, they were kind of comparing it back to. So, Quincytus, uh, he said that that's where Tylee was found in that area that was darkened and discolored. So they found that to be interesting. 
Now, on the cross, uh, Archibald asked if the police asked for all the photos from the satellite company. He said they did, but only four high-resolution pictures were usable, that were high-resolution enough to be able to zoom in enough to see what they were looking for. Part of the problem with the picture on the day that Tylee died is that there was some cloud coverage. So you could see clouds over top of Chad's property. It didn't completely block you from seeing the pet cemetery area, but it certainly got in the way a little bit. Oh, I guess they, see, it's a good thing that uh, I'm looking at Nate's notes right now, and he says the police had to purchase those images for $1,500. I heard $200. See? <laughs> I'm going to lean on Nate here. Right, he's probably right. Uh, <laughs> Archibald asked if there was any indication of smoke or fire from September 9th. Concitus says no. This, of course, was the day that Chad sent Tammy that text saying that he was having a fire to burn limb debris. He said, Archibald asked, have you been able to tell if Tylee was burned there on the property or burned somewhere else and transported to the property? Uh, Concitus said, I'm not going to speculate. I just know when we moved her remains, you could smell the fuel. So that's what I can speak to. So they could smell gasoline when they excavated her remains. Uh, he had also asked a question about, do you have any proof that she was burned in the fire pit? And then her remains were drug over to where they buried her in the, uh, pet cemetery. And he actually had said that he thought maybe that was true, that uh, there was bone fragments kind of all along there. So, so then, so that was it for uh, Concitus. Then Lindsay Blake called Samantha William. Samantha William is Tammy Daybell's sister. Now, she has been in the courtroom, uh, I think maybe yesterday, she was there all day today, and she can be, because she is a direct uh, family member to Tammy, so she can be there. William was contacted by the police asking about a pet cemetery on Tammy's property. Why? Because they found that text, and they thought that was weird, and they wanted to know what... Uh, What she knew about, is there a pet cemetery? And she said, yeah, Tammy loved animals and always had a slew of pets. And wherever she lived, she had a pet cemetery so that uh, when her beloved pets died, that she could uh, bury them on her property. She said that they were raised with a lot of pets and, you know, that Samantha has, you know, her own pet cemetery, that that's kind of what their family has done. Uh, she said that their pets and their family are our family. Girls after my own heart, for sure. Samantha was super nervous, and she cried some. She was so brave, and I was so proud of her. And I was so happy that they were able to start uh, bringing some humanity to Tammy. There's a little dog statue, this little black dog statue that was put at the pet cemetery after... Uh, one of Tammy's daughter's dogs died, that they buried the dog there and then put that uh, statue there to mark that. 
She said they've been on the property there to have uh, hot dog roasts or marshmallow roasts in that fire pit right there, you know, next to the pet cemetery. They've been all over that property in the past. She said, Tammy loved animals and loved to take care of them. She was introverted, but loved people and loved taking care of them too. She loved her grandkids. Uh, Blake showed William a photo. I'm going to put it up here. This is a picture of Tammy from one of her children's weddings. She said her adult kids all got married kind of close together, sometime around 2017-ish. She said that's typical Tammy, big smile on her face, happy, bright. That's Tammy. She said that uh, she and Tammy were the only two girls. Tammy was the uh, second oldest. She said, we were far enough that we didn't fight, but close enough that we got along really well. They were best friends. They talked every day. And back when they lived in Utah, they all lived close by. And they were essentially neighbors and saw each other every day and basically raised their kids together until right about 2016-ish when uh, Chad and family moved to Rexburg. She said Tammy didn't want to move to Rexburg. She did not like change, and she wanted to stay in Utah, but, you know, Chad gets what Chad wants, and they moved to Rexburg. When Tammy was in Utah, she worked uh, at the schools. She worked as a computers teacher. She also worked uh, as a secretary in a special education or special needs unit. And then, of course, when she moved here, she worked as a librarian in a grade school or a middle, middle grade to middle school, I guess. Uh, she said when Chad and Tammy first got married, she liked Chad a lot. She said he was a very good guy. He treated Tammy well. And her husband, Jason, and Chad were really good friends. And again, they saw each other all the time. They raised their kids together. They hung out together all the time, clear until they moved. He asked her, or Smith asked her, sorry, Blake asked her how she knew that uh, Tammy had died. And she said it's because Chad called her the morning that Tammy died and told her that she had been just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And she had just been coughing really bad and coughed really bad in the night. And that's, that's just all he knows. That's what happened. And she thought it was a little weird because... Tammy had been to visit her parents and all of them two weeks before she died. Tammy showed up by herself, which was very weird to Samantha because Tammy didn't travel by herself. She didn't like to go on long car rides alone. She didn't like to drive. She didn't really, or, or go by herself at least. And she thought it was weird. And that Tammy said to them that Chad just felt really strongly that she needed to come to Utah and visit her family. While she was there, Tammy told them all about the clogging class that she was taking at the time and even showed them her dance routine and told her about a marathon in Rexburg that she was getting ready to run. So she was trying to keep uh, good and fit and in good shape so she'd be able to do it. And Tammy was 49. She said she was very healthy when she saw her. She was healthy. She was happy. She was fine. She wasn't somebody that was knocking on death's door, that's for sure. Interestingly, 
Tammy never told Samantha that Chad was having an affair, but in the earlier part of 2019, Chad and Tammy went to visit and stayed with Jason and Samantha and acted really weird. They were very out of sync with each other. She said they were acting really awkward and uncomfortable with each other. And Chad was super unfriendly to Jason and didn't seem to want to uh, converse with him or they had been super good friends. So he was really confused about why his pal was like acting like he was not his friend anymore. In the meantime, in July, on Samantha's birthday, Tammy showed up at her door, which wouldn't be surprising except for that they lived in, uh, you know, about four hours away or a little more. But Tammy knocked on her door and handed her her birthday present and stood there and chatted with her for a few minutes and then left. And Chad was sitting in the car, car running, never got out, never said hello, nothing. It was very weird. Uh, those are the things that she had uh, identified this year or, or, or that year that Tammy died. And that was it for the day. Court was adjourned. Tomorrow, court is only going to last until 1.30. They're ending two hours early. I wanted to show you one of the pictures from the courtroom today. Uh, this, of course, uh, was one of the, excuse me, one of the scientists from Quantico. This is about what the uh, photos we looked at looked like from the evidence that they had prepared, but I thought this was a good one to kind of show you what the bones looked like in general. Yeah. So that's what court was today. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that we saw some fingerprints from Alex, but I'm a little uh, let down and concerned that uh, we're not seeing anything from the other two. But wouldn't it be just like those two to wear gloves and try to protect their identities a little bit better and not make any recommendation that Alex do that? You know, he thought they were going to make him the fall guy, and I think they absolutely intended to. Yeah. Pam said, I thought they were going to try to set up Mel Gibb and David Warwick for JJ's death. They killed him when they were both there, and then they told the police he was with Melanie Gibb. Thoughts on setting her up? I think anything's possible, Pam, and it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, Cranky, yes. This was one of the times that Chad had predicted or had a dream. I'm thinking in this one it was Tammy's. He said that he had a dream about Tammy's grandmother. But uh, that, yeah, that Tammy was going to be in a car accident. So he sent her to Utah? Or did his guilty ass conscience, does he have one? Uh, made him think that he should send her to Utah to see her family? Every time I hear that phrase, I still puzzle over it. He sent her to Utah. Chad told his wife, ordered his wife, to go to Utah to see her family. And so she did. There's nothing wrong with that, I guess, except for that, um, y'all, does your, does your husband send you to do something? Because mine sure doesn't. He, that term, that idea, yeah, okay, that's the patriarchy. Yes, you're, 
whoever's thinking that or saying that, you're correct. It is. It's the patriarchy. But gosh, hearing that over and over, I've been like, oh, one of those things, right? Right. These guys are like, no, my husband doesn't send me to do anything. No. Yes, Tammy's sister will be back tomorrow. She'll be on the stand first thing in the morning. She wasn't done. Um, she did great. I, I, she did great. I was really proud of her. That had to have been so hard and scary. Uh, and she was doing an awesome job. <laughs> Amy wishes her husband would send her on a vacation. Well, this is true. Maybe I should stop being so sassy and get sent somewhere. Sometimes I just want sent to my room. Is that too much to ask? Lori acted normal today. Lori did a lot of writing in her notebook, chatting with her attorneys. Just acting like Lori. Nothing different. It was very good to hear from the Daybell side of the family. I feel like in so many ways, Tammy has gotten lost, you know? Charles, too, but it's, Tammy's a part of this event, and we've talked so much about the kids and been so upset about the kids, and it's so egregious that they killed the kids, but they also murdered Tammy. Tammy, mother of five, grandmother, friend, sister, wonderful person from anyone you talk to, anyone you talk to. I have a dear cousin that is uh, that was good friends with Tammy, and her death was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And then to learn that it may have been a murder, it's heartbreaking to so many people. Lori didn't react to Tammy's sister at all. She just sat and drew and did Lori things. Like there was nothing different. I, I looked up one time just in time to see her scratch her nose and adjust her glasses. And I thought, sure enough, somebody's going to say she was crying. At least in that instance, no, she wasn't. I don't think there was any tears or anything like that today. She acted pretty disinterested, you know, like she does. She wasn't looking particularly at any of the discovery or the evidence. She mostly had her eyes down. Unless we were on breaks and stuff like that. And then she's just chatting it up, friendly as can be, with her attorneys. Yeah. Uh, Kat said, I think her trip to Utah was an attempt to kill her and make it look like an accident. Alex uh, in the ghillie suit on a hidden spot on the highway. Yeah, right? Wouldn't surprise me. Nothing would surprise me at this point. It wouldn't surprise me that if they had, you know, fiddled with that car in some way, too, but... Uh, Snow Queen says, unfortunately, they'll focus on the kids more for Lori since they were hers. And Tammy will be more focused on in Chad's. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. I just want to make sure that Tammy is well represented. She deserves that. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. I mean, it wasn't wildly exciting today. I, I wish it was. I wish there had been some some barn burners in that uh, evidence, but there wasn't. In the jury questionnaire, one of the things they had been asked is, could they find someone guilty of murder without knowing how the uh, decedent had died? Well, they just don't know how Tylee died. They're never going to know unless somebody decides to spill their guts. Doubt that's going to happen. They just don't know. I agree. Next week will be exciting with Tammy's autopsy info. So interested in Tammy's... Uh, toxicology so 
I know there's some people hypothesizing that they think this trial is very, uh, is going to come to an end really soon. We're only, we're sitting at, I think, 36 witnesses out of more than 90 that were subpoenaed. Now, they may not call everybody that was subpoenaed. My goodness, today they recalled Chuck Consitus. We're still a ways away, in my opinion. We're still a ways away. Uh, I'm curious to know, though, who you guys haven't seen on the stand yet that you still think we need to see. Exactly, Moonbeam. Even if you don't know how they died, it's clear they were murdered, right? Tylee didn't do that to herself. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Who else do we want to see? Throw it out there. Give me some names. Garth? Yeah. Uh, Court TV and take it with a grain of salt because they've said some pretty uh, egregious things. But they're saying that, uh, that it was their belief that uh, Tammy's parents or Chad's parents, Chad's parents, and Garth would all be on the stand on Friday or Monday. Ian's first wife, Nicole, no, Natalie. Her name is Natalie. Ian's first wife, Natalie, definitely. Melanie Pulowski. This might be one of the longest trials you've covered, definitely. Uh, Ian Pulowski, definitely. Garth, yes. Lori. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Katie, on that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Chad, too, but that's probably a pipe dream. Somebody asked prior if Chad would be testifying, and he said no. <laughs> no big surprise. Uh, the wedding photographer, realtor. Yeah, there's other people from Hawaii that we could easily see. Yep. Alex's first wife. Ooh, maybe. Interesting. Do they have Tylee's phone? They do have Tylee's phone. It was on Lori. Uh, Chad, Chad's parents, Mark Beans. <laughs> well, he did make himself a witness. <laughs> oh, Janet, thank you. I really love that. Uh, Kat said she'd like to see Audrey. Yes, she has remained mysterious for sure. Uh, yeah, he can't actually uh, testify. We just, uh, unless he rolled, unless he took a deal, but that doesn't seem to be happening yet. But you guys, you cannot tell me that Pryor isn't watching this with his heart sinking a little lower into his chest every day. How is he not peeing his pants right now? Surely he is. Surely he is. Yeah. Yeah, Audrey, the friend from, <laughs> Audrey, the friend from Minnesota, Minnesota, Missouri, the friend from Missouri. Christy and I, we just, we, all we do is talk shit, cranky. <laughs> Tylee's aunt. Oh, Annie? I don't know if Annie would have anything to say, but I would love to hear from Annie. I think Annie's an amazing human being. Yeah. Uh, Janet said, I doubt Chad would even get a deal at this point. Do you think they'd offer it now? I definitely do. Yeah, I do. Uh, they don't want to have to do this trial twice. They do not want to have to do this again. So if they could get Chad to plead guilty, especially if he would roll on Lori, it might be too late. But uh, if they could, uh, yeah, if they could get out of having to do this trial again by maybe dropping the death penalty, hell yeah, they'd do it in a heartbeat. Yep. 
In the victim's impact statement, Tylee's at, absolutely. I really hope that we get to hear from Annie then. Absolutely. Uh, Julie Rowe, that's another interesting thought. I mean, Julie had said at one point that uh, she and Chad kind of had started into maybe a bit of an emotional affair, or that Chad had tried to kiss her and some things. Would be interesting to hear from Julie, without a doubt. We'll see on the 5th how Pryor's feeling. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a status conference for Chad on the 5th. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they'll offer a deal right up to the verdict. Yeah, because honestly, they don't want to do this again. So, yep. Anyone in any of the temples they visited? Oh, that's an interesting thought. Uh, hmm. And the church really, really protects their uh, members. They don't want them to testify or talk to anybody. I don't know if they'd have anything of interest to say or not. Looked to me like what they were doing was pretty super secret. So, uh I don't know, but that's a really interesting thought. I hope they make Lori listen to people during the victim impact. Oh, yeah, she'll have to sit in the courtroom. I mean, for as much as she'll probably be do doodling away, you know, but I'm sure that, yeah, she'll have to be in the courtroom. Yep. Heather Daybell. Yes, I would love to hear from Heather Daybell. We'll see. So, and then, of course, I still want to hear about that tape. There's another lab. There's actually two more labs that we haven't heard from yet. So there's still more information on that front to come, I believe. Um, and hopefully it's going to give us a little more. I also don't think that we're all the way done with the uh, technology. I don't think we're anywhere near done with the technology. They're just slowly laying out the the story you know, painting the whole picture as best they can without just completely and totally confusing the jury. And I'm sure they're completely and totally confused at this point. But I would imagine they really, really would like to, uh, for this to be done. <laughs> but we're, we're not anywhere near done yet. So anyway, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about as well. Is that Chad's daughter from across the street, Heather Daybell? No. Heather Daybell is Chad's former sister-in-law. Well, I guess still sister-in-law, to be fair. You do need a big flow chart for this case. Yeah, yarn and all, an entire wall. It, it takes it all. Yes. Okay. True. They haven't read Loinfire yet, have they? No. Do you think they will? I will die. Yeah, maybe they will. Yeah, the rental lady in Hawaii. There's a lot they could still call. A lot of people they could still call. So we'll see. There's also some friends they could still call. Jason Mao is one of them. Christopher Parrott. Uh, Thor. Oh, the hell's that guy's name? There was another guy in Utah that had a similar like site to uh, the uh, AVAO site. I can't think of his name. But yeah, there were other friends and players that were kind of semi- involved and connected they could get any of them as well yeah so who knows i mean all of that could be coming or none of it who knows we're just not the prosecutor little bear yeah thank you katie yep <laughs> phyllis said loin fire i would die laughing they'd have to kick me out 
That would be a tough one to get through for sure. I'd be yet again glad to be in, in Rexburg where we are a little more laid back. Sometimes I don't like how laid back it is, but in that instance, it would probably be good. Uh, yeah, Eric, the friend Eric. Yep. The wife of the neighbor that died. Ah, not going to happen, I don't think. I, that has been really hushed up. I think not. Interesting thought, though. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we won't have an associate in court tomorrow. It's Christy's day, but she is feeling really poorly, so she won't be there. Oh, the storage rental guy. That's a good one, too, Linda. <coughs> and Lori. What if they put Lori on the stand? Like, I know it's improbable. I do. I, and I know that most uh, attorneys are like, it'll never happen. But Lori's attorneys have been clear that they have been very careful to uh, support her and to, uh, you know, allow her First Amendment rights to be supported and to be uh, not just supported, but to be absolutely uh, respected. That's why they didn't waive that right to a speedy trial. I think it's why they've done other things that seem to be ill-advised. And would it surprise me terribly to see Lori on the stand? Not terribly, no. Yeah. It would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we would all be running to the courthouse to be able to watch that one for sure. So uh, we'll just refer to Nate tomorrow and, and follow his notes and uh, Alex uh, and some of the others that are there. And... We'll still do a live tomorrow and talk about what happened at court, but we won't actually have an associate in the courtroom tomorrow. But then starting next week, we'll be back to, uh, you know, having someone there just about every day. So thanks, you guys, so much for being here. I appreciate you guys uh, a lot. If you want to support us, you can go over to True Crime Squad. And many of you have. Thank you so much. We appreciate you guys so much. Yes, this has been an enormous amount of work covering the trial and balancing life in general. And as you notice uh, here on the channel, we're kind of lacking any other content right now. We just don't have it in us. I There's a lot of stuff going on with other cases that I really want to talk about. And I just don't, we don't have the bandwidth. So we'll get back to it. But right now, this just seems to be the most important thing. So here we are. So thanks so much for being here, you guys. Have a good night. Please take good care of yourselves. I know you guys are also running yourselves ragged, keeping an eye on all of this nonsense. So take good care of yourself, please. You deserve it. Thanks so much. This has been yet another production of the True Crime Squad. Thank <music> you.